It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flint composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Here's your host... Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get through it. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. This is going to be a fun one. We're going to start out. Uh, you ever wonder, like, who came up with the idea for that? And, uh, in fact, I think there was even a television show. Who thought of that? Um, but uh, it, it never occurred to me until a new book, a memoir, came out called Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. Uh, it, it never occurred to me that, that somebody was behind the idea of, hey, let's have a 24-hour-a-day comedy channel. And uh, But, in fact, there was in uh, 1988, and that guy was Art Bell. And he joins me now by phone. Hey, Art, welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. That has to be one of the clumsiest introductions I've ever done. <laughs> Sounded good to me. And and I think um, part of the reason was, Art, I'm, I'm fascinated by the book, and I, I was a big fan of Comedy Central when it first came out. Of course, I liked MTV when they uh, played music. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I was reading something, one of those about the author things about you. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And something stuck out, and it, it was one of those things. While working at HBO, <laughs> Art came up with Comedy Central. Well, right. you don't start out working at HBO, Art. <laughs> how, how was it that you were at HBO to begin with? Well, actually, that's, uh, that's an interesting story in itself. I um, graduated from college with a degree in economics, and my first job was as an economist in Washington, D.C. I worked for a consulting firm. I, oh, that's uh, funny. Yeah. <laughs> different, right? I'm just giving you the whole thing. I know. Um, I appreciate that. And, and um, I, I was doing uh, econometric forecasting models for the Department of Energy, and it was very interesting, and I loved it. People always say, well, geez, you were an economist before? You must have hated it. I said, no, I loved it. It was really fun. And, but I decided, having had a long sort of love of entertainment and television and especially comedy, I was a, I was a comedy nerd in, in, uh, in my childhood, you know, and, and when I was in high school and college. I just loved comedy. 
so I decided to go back, you know, go back to school and see if I could get a job in television or film. So I went to graduate school, and in graduate school, I uh, it was at uh, at Wharton in Philadelphia, and they had uh, something called the Wharton Follies, and that was kind of a musical comedy review. And I ended up writing that show the second year I was there and performing it. It had a great time. And I realized how much I really did love comedy. So when I graduated, uh, all my friends were getting jobs at consulting firms and, and investment banks. And not me. I wanted to go into the film tele- uh, or television business. So I waited around and finally got a job at CBS uh, in, their, in their television stations division. But I did not find that very interesting. CBS at the time was one of three networks. It wasn't, you know, there wasn't much happening there for a guy like me. I was doing financial analysis, and it wasn't very interesting. And then a friend of mine called from HBO, and he said, hey, you got to come over here. This place is fantastic. Everybody's walking around the hall saying they're going to change television. And, you know, that was in the mid-'80s, and, yes, they were going to change television. Of course they have. Um, so I went over there. I got a job amazingly forecasting HBO subscribers. And the reason they hired me is <laughs> how many guys in the television business knew anything about econometric forecasting, right? That's probably the one guy. So anyway, I, got, I took the job knowing that that's not what I wanted to do. Um, now, now and I spent a couple of years doing analysis for them. You play piano and jazz drums. How, how, how is it that you didn't end up spending most of your life... Uh, in the corner of a Holiday Inn lounge. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, I, I grew up in a musical household in that uh, my mother was a piano teacher. So we were just hearing music 24 hours a day. And we had to, you know, I have two brothers. We had to play for our supper. You know, we had to practice piano <laughs> for an hour a day in order to get fed. That said, I wasn't the world's greatest piano player. I mean, I, I, I did like it. And I still play classical music. But it wasn't until I got to New York that, um, you know, and, and working at CBS that I decided, you know, similarly, what I loved was jazz, and I wanted to learn how to play jazz piano. And that was quite an undertaking for a kid who'd been, you know, playing classical music all his life. I would think. Uh, yeah, and, uh, but I found a wonderful teacher, a guy by the name of Joe Shiani, and he had been a classically trained pianist and found himself uh, trying to play jazz when he was in his teens and failing miserably. So he knew something about transforming a classical player into a jazz player. And it was, it was uh, as I said, it was quite an undertaking. It was a lot of fun. But I, I, I don't think I've ever or will ever get to the level where I can play, you know, professionally. Certainly, I've played with, you know, friends of mine in bands and stuff. And that's, uh, that's sufficient. I... Uh it's interesting you make that uh, connection between classical music and jazz because um, I, I play drums too, Art, and I was uh, playing with this uh, this older jazz uh, sax player who once on a break explained to me how to how to understand and listen to jazz, and he said. When you listen to classical music and you hear the violin playing the melody line and then the violas come in with a little line, you know, behind the phrase that sort of suggests that phrase, he said, jazz is like that, but you make it up. (laughs) 
<laughs> I think that's as good an explanation as any. But, uh, but, although Count Basie, when asked what jazz was, he said, hey, tap your foot. And that, <laughs> to me, that was as good an explanation, too. Because and, jazz is very rhythmic, you know. It's very, it's very much about, uh, about the beat and about swinging. Which is uh, which is difficult. Do you play jazz drums? Can I ask you that? I, yeah, I have. I have. I, uh-huh. I wouldn't say that I'm great at it, but I love jazz. And so, yeah, I've, I've played a lot of swing gigs. And, it, and it's kind of interesting because, you know, in R&B and most of the music that people dance to, there's this real solid beat. And, and in jazz, it's almost like there is no solid beat. It, the, the swing is in the air. And everybody's yeah. just playing around that that feel, right? That's true. That's true. Now R and B was sort of the, the transition between jazz and rock, um, but you know, remember jazz was originally a dance music. You know, the oh jazz yeah, was, jazz was the big band was dance music, and that's uh, that's how it ended up being rock and roll or influencing rock and roll, certainly in the fifties and sixties. Um, but I, I will say this: I I took up drums about 10 years ago and i have i've really concentrated on jazz and it's a funny story about why i took up drums i was playing piano at night and my kids were young and my my wife said look you can't play piano after seven o'clock because the kids are trying to get ready for bed and they're going to bed and uh i said "Ah, that's bad so i said um what am I going to do about that? And I decided I would get an electronic drum set ah. because nobody could hear me play. Gotcha. <laughs> and that's how I started. And if I found out I loved it. I just loved it. And I've, I've played jazz drum. I've concentrated on jazz. You know, my teachers always say, well, you got to play a little rock and roll. You know, you got to play some rock to, so you know how to do it. But really, I love playing jazz uh, on drums. And uh, it's, it's been fun. But we digress, huh? A, a little bit. Um, <laughs> I, I suppose we should depart from our jazz symposium here and uh, get get back to how you started Comedy Central. It's um, obviously you had a love of comedy, and and uh, but but how did the the idea form, Art? I, I, I just get this picture of you you know, sitting in a bar someplace with a friend and going, wouldn't it be cool if there was a, a channel that you could just turn on and it would be funny? Yeah, that's, you know, I'm sure there was that uh, that particular scene somewhere in my life. But I, I think I came to it by myself. Um, I think I loved comedy so much. And, you know, when I was a kid growing up, I listened to all the albums, George Carlin and, and, uh, and Robert Klein. Uh, and and uh, even Lenny Bruce, you know, my parents had had some of those older albums, and I I could just spend I had hours such a tough listening time. to them over and over. I had such a tough time with Lenny Bruce because you know he he got so serious and so political, and I kept listening for the funny. Yeah, well, that uh, you know, it's it's interesting to talk about Lenny because he was a transformative comedian, I think. He was one of the first guys to get up there and really talk about his life from, you know, from his heart and his soul. The problem is he was a, you know, he was unfortunately a drug addict, and he was harassed so much by the police that he just kind of descended into what probably is some kind of drug-induced madness, and that's that's where it ended up. But his early stuff, you know, if you can find it, or his uh, his written stuff is is very funny. Yeah, but um, without yeah, and and without Lenny Bruce. You couldn't have George Carlin and Richard Pryor and 
some of the That's other exactly groups. right. I mean, George Carlin especially. George Carlin <laughs> knew Lenny Bruce. George Carlin was coming on the scene when Lenny Bruce was sort of leaving the scene. They were friends, you know. And, um, and George, you know, he studied what Lenny was doing. Because Lenny was... He was a comedian's comedian, you know. He was really the guy that they watched to say, "Hey, man, this guy is doing, this guy is doing something different, and uh, we got to do that." Before that, you know, I mean, it was it was really jokes, and Bob Hope, and uh, you know, a line, a laugh, a line, a laugh, and you know, Bob Hope wasn't talking about his life, um, and while he was funny, and certainly his writers were terrific, it it that Lenny Bruce, that early late fifties, early sixties transformation was very important to comedy. Uh, and and I I I wouldn't I, I wouldn't say I studied Lenny Bruce myself. I mean, there were a handful of books written about him, and I listened to his albums. There were a couple of you know films of him that I, you know that was before the internet. I don't even know how I came across them, but I, I did I did take a special interest in, in Lenny Bruce. But anyway, I, I was saying I listened to all of this and I watched all of this, and I think you're getting the picture. I think yeah. that that I was you know sort of immersed in comedy when I was in high school. I started an underground satirical newspaper just so I could write it. I thought <laughs> I thought uh, Swift. The whole idea that Swift wrote you know a modest proposal about you know the famines. Uh, of the time and actually got somebody to pay attention and change things to me was remarkable you know oh you can use comedy to actually make a social uh, impression to make us to enact social change and of course you can of course now you know I see that but at the time I was so fascinated that I wanted to do that and started this in high school wrote satire wrote some comedy performed some comedy in 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 college um and as I said, in, in grad school. And so, you know, comedy was kind of like the, I guess it was the background music to my life for a long time, you know what I mean? Uh, and I never really wanted to be a comedian or even a comedy writer. I just didn't think that was my um, special talent. I, I, I really thought that what was interesting about me was that I loved comedy and entertainment and, and knew and felt something about it, I thought, uh, seriously at the time. Um, plus, I, I had a background in, in analysis and business and management. And, you know, I thought, wow, that's a good combination, maybe, uh, if, if anybody would want to hire me for that. Um, anyway, so I come out of grad school, and I am, I've just done this Wharton Follies thing, and it was a riot and reminded me that I loved writing comedy. And I'm, I'm thrust into the television world in the 80s. Now, HBO went on a satellite in 1976, and, you know, people were starting to to put together cable channels that were single subject channels, you know, ultimately MTV, 24 hours of uh, music, which, as you point out, is no longer the case, but that's how <laughs> it started. Arts and Entertainment, which is A&E now, started as 24 hours of Arts and Entertainment, uh, whatever that was. Hey, and, Art, and, you know, Art, I hate to interrupt you, but i got to put a comma there. I need to take a short break. Can you stick around for a few minutes, and we'll dig down oh, some sure. more? All right, sure. my guest is Art Bell. And uh, I promise we're going to talk about his book, Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor, when we return. But in the meantime, we're going to let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. Then more with Art Bell right after this. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. A social distancing tip. Putting distance between yourself and others is critical to slowing the spread of coronavirus. So here are ways to stay in contact without the physical contact part. Call, send a text, set up a video conference, post on social media, dedicate a song on the radio. If you have symptoms of fever, dry cough, and shortness of breath, call your health care provider before going to their office. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part, because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad America, Council. your children have an amazing superpower. They can help save lives by not having playdates. That's right. By replacing get-togethers with virtual playdates and video chats, they can help slow the evil spread of germs. And if your superheroes do go outside, make sure they continue their superhero wing by staying six feet away from others to protect everyone in America land. Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Your calls matter. Join me and Andrea weekdays from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern to talk about whatever you want to talk about. The Tom Sumner Program has open phone lines Monday through Friday to hear from you. How's 2020 working out for you so far? How about those damn roads? Call in live at 810-339-8255. It's all about you. We'll be streaming live at TomSumnerProgram.com and simulcast on WFOV 92.1 FM in Flint. Foil hats are optional. You thought you had every Elvis record made, but wait, Elvis sings again, this time from heaven. That's right, Elvis from heaven. Yes, hear Elvis from Graceland in the Sky, soul-stirring versions of epic proportions. You'll hear Elvis crooning, Pearly Gate Rock, all dug up, lying in the chapel, and 11 others. This record also includes a special Elvis message. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Elvis Presley. Order before midnight tonight and receive this Elvis Presley commemorative casket keychain. Open it up. Yes, the king inside. A must for any Elvis fan. Order yours today. To order your Elvis from Heaven, send $9.95 in checker money order to Elvis from Heaven, P.O. Box 714, Cleo, Michigan, 44487. Or save COD charges and phone 555-5554. Use Master Charge or Visa, Canadian Residence, add $3. 
Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. Tom Sumner program.com The Tom Sumner program.com This is Congressman Dan Kildee and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, continuing my conversation with uh, Art Bell, um, and we're going to talk about his uh, new book. It's a, a memoir, Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. And uh, Art, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, man. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, Art, um, just before the break, we were, we were talking a little bit about how you... Um, evolved in in your love of comedy and you were at HBO and you came up with the idea um, it was the the 80s and and we were just beginning to see uh, cable TV taking uh, taking root and channels developing um, would it be possible to start a comedy central today or was there something special about that that time and and where we were in the evolution of television well i think that today if you take a look at the technology today and i said this starting in the mid-2000s you know you can start a tv channel out of your garage i mean you know you don't you don't need a whole lot beyond the internet and you know the digital cameras and the digital technology that's available but in the 80s in order to start a channel you had to have satellite uplink equipment and you had to have, you know, a studio, and there was no digital in the 80s. I mean, that didn't come until the 90s uh, and uh, early 2000s. So, you know, in order to start a television channel, you needed a zillion dollars, and very few people were doing it. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, as I said, ESPN was an, uh, had started, and they were an all-sports channel. Uh, and they they started, and they were probably spending a bunch of money. But you know, you got to remember, they weren't spending much money at that time on programming because programming was expensive. Uh, they were they were, and and you may recall this. They were showing, you know, you tune in at any given day, uh, at at, at uh, you know ten o'clock at night, and they were showing uh, a lacrosse game from high school. They they didn't have the the you know the nfl or or major league baseball or any of that stuff you know they 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 were really kind of just scraping by because their overhead costs were high and they had to really you know they had to really work to get programming that was the way uh channel started in those days expensive undertaking um as far as you know listen amassing enough comedy for for uh television or enough anything at as uh, as a matter of fact, um, you know, there's more of it now than there was then, right? Um, and uh, so I, I don't think that there would be any shortage of programming. One of the programming sources we found, and we're jumping ahead a little bit, was, you know, stand-up comedy. And stand-up comedy had been filmed for years in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, even before there was a comedy network, um, because it was inexpensive to produce, relatively inexpensive to produce, and that was one of sort of one of the things that that um, became a consideration as we put uh, as we put the channel together. That it was inexpensive to produce, that you could get um, you know you could get stand-up comedy in short bursts, and uh, there was tons of it lying around. 
Can well, and a lot of it thanks to Bud Friedman. Yeah, a lot of it thanks for Bud Fried to Bud Friedman and all of those people who, you know, who had comedy clubs in, in the eighties. Now, the interesting thing is, um, the comedy club scene was just starting to take off in a really big way. I mean, it kind of came and went many times, but you know, in in especially in New York, in in and L.A. in the late uh, in the late eighties, and I think that was. That was key to people finally listening to my idea for a uh, for a twenty four hour comedy channel. So just just to answer your original question before the break, um, yeah, I had I I loved comedy. I and when I went into the television business and working at CBS and at HBO, I'm thinking, how come if there's an all sports channel because people love sports, how come there's not an all comedy channel because people love comedy? And then you know MTV shows up with an all music channel, and that pretty much nailed it for me. It's like okay. Somebody's going to do this. It might as well be HBO. That was my first thought. And there I was. So I started talking about it at HBO to, you know, anybody that could, basically. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, in elevators and in the hallway. I didn't know anybody in the programming department. I, as I said, I was over in finance and business. Um, but it was a small enough company that occasionally I'd run into somebody and bring it up. And they'd say, no, that's not a it's interesting, but it's not, you know, it's not going to happen. Um, and I just, I just kept saying, why not? So finally, I made an appointment with the head of programming, which, you know, for me was a gutsy thing to do. I, I look back on this and said, how did, I, how did I get my courage up to do something like that? I mean, I was just a kid at HBO. I hadn't been there that long. And I went to see her. Her name was Bridget. And, uh, I, you know, this is, this is in the book. It's one of the first things I talk about. And I went to see her and I said, hey, uh, hi, Bridget. I, I have an idea I want to tell you about. I, I think we should do a 24-hour comedy network. And she stopped me and she said, that is the worst idea I've ever heard. She <laughs> said, it's, it's nobody, who would want to watch a 24-hour comedy network? Nobody would want to watch that. And she said, on top of that, you think Billy Crystal or Robin Williams or any of the great comedians would want to be on a 24-hour comedy network? Absolutely not. And finally, she says, HBO would not risk their reputation on doing a comedy network. They just wouldn't do it. We're doing great. We do our own comedy. We do, you know, stand-up specials here. And then she said, uh, I think that's the end of the meeting. And uh, by the way, I don't think you know that much about television, do you? And I said, oh, I guess not. So I walked out. And that was my first kind of big, uh, big rejection. But you know what? I immediately realized uh, as I was walking away from her office and back to my office that she was wrong, that there would be a 24-hour comedy network, and then it was a good idea, and I just kept that going inside myself uh, um, despite that. Well, there there had to be a certain, um, as, as I remember those days, uh, you know, I mentioned Bud Friedman. There were, you know, some of these comedy clubs where 30-minute where, uh, programs were being produced for late night and they were pretty popular well i i you know in, it's interesting you mention that because um when you think about television before comedy you know the comedy channel comedy central got started there were two places on the dial on cable that were known for comedy the first was hbo because they had just started in the mid 80s to produce those high-end one-hour and sometimes half hour, you're right, sometimes half hour comedy specials. Um, you know, they did an hour with Robert Klein, they did an hour with Billy, Whoopi, Robin, the whole thing. And that was, that was really a breakthrough because on television, you couldn't see Robin Williams uncut, uncensored, you know, anywhere 
you had to go to a club to see Robin Williams do his real act. So HBO was really a breakthrough in uh, in the comedy business there. The second place, and this may surprise you, or maybe not, you seem to know certainly a lot about this, um, was A&E. A&E ran a show at 7.30 every night called A&E at the Improv. And it was just what we're talking about. It was a you know two-camera shoot. It was um, in front of a brick wall. It was young comedians, some of them unknown, um, coming up and doing you know five five minutes. And it was it was it was a, um, on every night. So people came to know it because there weren't that many channels on the dial, and you were always bumping into it when you were changing the channel. <laughs> and there it was. Stand-up comedy on, 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 cable, on cable TV. And one of the things I said to HBO, I said, look, you guys are, you know, HBO is known for comedy. I said, so is A&E. Are you going to cede the landscape, the comedy landscape to A&E? I mean, what if they put together a comedy channel? Because they could. And, uh, you know, that was one of the, the, the arguments I made over the long course of trying to make arguments to the, uh, to the HBO executives to, to get me to do this to allow me to to allow us to do this it wasn't certainly just me at, at uh how how at long was it launch. from from your initial idea to the launch of the show and what, or, or the the channel and what was the launch like well i you know i i really came up you know it wasn't so much an idea but i really wanted there to be um a 24-hour comedy channel, as I was coming out of business school looking at the television landscape, I said, man, if there was one, I'd apply there. And then I started thinking about what it would be, and I talked to a lot of people, mostly friends of mine, about it, and they would point out objections, and I would refine my model of how to do it, how to do it inexpensively, how to get it launched, why it would work, etc. So that was, you know, in 1983-84. Then we cut to 88 by the time uh, HBO really started to take take this seriously so that was that was that time frame but from the time i pitched the head of uh hbo's uh programming department to the time when they said yes was probably another six months i think another six months or eight months and and Um, what was what was the launch like i mean what you had to scramble to find programming you were gonna you know all of a sudden tomorrow you're on 24 hours a day yeah, you know, you don't understand until you do it what 24 hours a day of programming <laughs> any channel is about. It is just a daunting experience. Um, the, the launch of the channel uh, was, was a very tough day. It was a very tough day, and I, I will say that the first three to six months of that channel were not what you call a rip-roaring success. The critics hated it. The audiences were slow to show up. We did not have enough programming. There's just no other way to put it, and I'll tell you why. One of the ways that I wanted to do the channel inexpensively, and again, a big, a big objection to doing a comedy network is, hey, comedy's expensive. HBO said, we make one-hour comedy specials. You know what those things cost? And, and I said, okay, here's how we're going to do it. We're going to do it using um, a lot of short-form comedy because, you know, stand-up comedy comes in short bursts. And then you can also find short pieces of uh, scenes from comedy movies, scenes from comedy television. I said, there's an endless supply of that stuff. And I figured out a way to use it. And the way to use it is we will use it um, and put it on as promotion for the actual movie or show that it's from. And amazingly, that worked as a concept. 
we had to get the unions to start sign off on it in Hollywood. You know, the Directors Guild and everybody else, the Writers Guild. Sure. And they did, and the studios did. So we started cutting clips and putting stand-up comedy clips and all this stuff together in a big room behind us, knowing that we had to launch in whatever it was, six months from the time we were given the okay. And eight weeks before the launch, and I, I talk about this in the book, the directors go called and said, we changed our mind. We don't want you to use clips. We're not going to give you permission. <laughs> oh, boy. You can imagine my disappointment. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, what, what would it st- what had become, you know, a very, very big undertaking and scary for a guy like me. I was not well-versed in this stuff. I was learning on the job. Suddenly, I had no programming, and I, I, had, I was facing a launch. To make a long story short, we found our way around some of that, and we had about 10% of the programming that we originally expected to have. Um, and we also had some long-form programming. That's around the time Mystery Science Theater 3000 came in the door. Um, and I know, uh, I presume a lot of your listeners are familiar with Mystery Science Theater 3000. Oh, yeah. But we had that show as well. We had some movies. We had some, uh, some television series, some classic comedy. Uh, and so, you know, we cobbled together a, a schedule, and we put basically a six-hour schedule together for the first day, and we were going to play that four times, <laughs> uh, which we did. And then the second day looked a lot like the first day, let me tell you. And uh, the, the critics were, were brutal. The critics were brutal. <laughs> they, it's one, one, one critic... I guess, I don't remember, I think it was Entertainment Week, he said, this is the gong channel, you know, it's just horrible. I think one of the reasons that we got so savaged by the critics early on is because Michael Fuchs, who was the chairman of HBO, and at that time had been called the most powerful man in Hollywood, um, <laughs> and he was, had bragged about how, in advance of the launch, had boasted about how great this comedy network was going to be. HBO is going to put together a comedy network. You're never going to see anything. You've never seen anything like it. We're going to make a huge amount of money. It's going to be fantastic. And it launched, and it wasn't. And I think <laughs> there was a lot of schadenfreude going around, you know, like, hey, this Michael Fuchs, man, he just fell flat on his face, and we are going to, we are going to take advantage of that. So it was a little bit of that. It was a little bit of that. And the first, the first few months um, of the channel were very hard. Actually, that's where the subtitle comes from, because Michael called us in after about three or four months and he uh he sat us down and he looked at us for about 30 seconds and he said you know it took a comedy channel to get me to lose my sense of humor and uh (laughs) i looked around and i realized god we all lost our sense of humor this is not good um but uh that's that that was the first six months uh, or nine months of the channel it was very hard well our what would comedy be without hecklers yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you know what? The interesting thing is, we were being heckled, and I, I, and at that point, a lot of my compatriots, because you know it wasn't just me at that point; it was hundreds, hundreds of people that were involved in this at this point, including comedy professionals. I was, I had not been a comedy professional. I was teamed up with guys who had been in the comedy business for ten or fifteen years, and the first thing they said to me was, "What do you know about comedy?" And the answer was not much. You know, <laughs> I didn't know anything about the comedy business, um, and I had to learn on the job. But that that was another you know difficult part of putting this together. But I was hell bent on making sure there was a comedy network in the world, uh, and I worked very hard at it. And so did everybody else. Now I will mention that six months after we launched, we got competition. 
which uh, is amazing when you think about it. From? Um, MTV Networks. Oh, yeah, yeah. The way that happened was MTV Networks had, um, as far as I understand it, no real plans to launch a comedy network. They, you know, they hadn't announced anything. But when we worked on the channel at HBO for three or four, maybe six months, and then we had a big press conference. Again, Michael was very excited about this. We had a big press conference in L.A., a luncheon, and Billy Crystal was there, and a lot of comedians were there, and every the press was there, and we launched. And then exactly... The next, we announced our launch. The next day, MTV Networks puts out a, a press release. We are launching a comedy network as well, and it's going to be called Ha. Now, <laughs> you can see what happened there. I mean, MTV was a, you know, a very competitive organization. They saw what HBO was doing. They said, hey, we're not going to let this happen. The amazing thing that I thought at that moment was, hey, you know, a year ago there were no comedy networks in the world. Suddenly there's going to be two. <laughs> That's crazy. And and it was crazy, you know. Again, six months after comedy launched at HBO, uh Ha launched uh it was called Ha the Comedy Network was launched by MTV. And so we were two comedy networks going head to head for audience. We were competing for advertisers, we were competing for programming. We were both trying to get Saturday Night Live on our network, you know, the reruns on our networks. And and uh and and for cable carriage you know in those days cable channels weren't digital they were analog so some cable channels had some cable operators in some in some places i'm sure in michigan had you know 12 channels or maybe 24 or 30 channels they didn't want two comedy networks they, they didn't want to first of all they didn't want to pay for them and second of all they didn't have the room they had other channels they had to consider because at, at that point you know there were a lot of channels more channels were launching i won't say a lot but more channels were launching and that was the environment in the first year. We, I thought they were going to turn us off every day. I thought any day they were going to say, this isn't working, and we're just going to shut it down. Now, but I, I have to believe, Art, that as much trouble, uh, as, as difficult it, as it was for you uh, at Comedy Central to come up with programming, that, that other uh, startups were having that same that same struggle how do we find enough content you know to to warrant this 24 hours a day and and I, and I wonder you know we've we've kind of picked on MTV a little bit because they used to be music um, MTV is is an easy example to show how you know they they really wandered away from the original concept and and I wonder how much of that was caused by the difficulty in generating enough content. I think it was less um, difficulty in generating the content they'd been generating. Because, again, you know, there was lots of music around. Every band up and down, you know, in every country in the world, you know, in the old days you did a demo record. Now you did a demo uh um, tape, you know, you did a, a demo video, music video, and they were throwing this stuff at MTV. MTV had no shortage of music videos. What MTV discovered was they didn't have enough programming that would keep an audience, and that was a different story. The music video um, format, you know, uh, didn't ultimately 
Well, let me say this. I wasn't there, obviously. The audience it was attracting wasn't spending any money, Art. That's right. I mean, they (laughs) They they, turned the thing on like the radio. (laughs) They saw, yeah, it was a radio model. It was absolutely a radio model. Started by a guy who came from radio. Um, But the point is, they saw an opportunity at MTV, like any organization. Hey, we got a pretty successful channel. How do we make it more successful? And the answer was, okay, let's expand the kinds of programming that we're doing. Now, as you rightly point out, they, they they initially didn't wander away from music, but then they ultimately wandered away from music and defined their, defined their, their network as um, an audience. You know, they, t- they talked about being an audience for the 18 to 34 uh, viewer. And, you know, again, young viewers are, are hard to get. And for some reason, the advertising industry decided that younger, younger viewers and younger listeners were, uh, were the most important because they could, they could buy products and decide that they loved that product and buy it for the rest of their life, which ultimately turned out to com- be complete hooey. But that was the way everybody was thinking. So let's get a young audience. Let's find a young audience. Let's advertise to a young audience. And that's why MTV started putting in different kinds of programming. Now, the title of the book is uh, Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. And you mentioned how, you know, everybody, because it was getting so beat up in the early days, um, had lost their sense of humor. Um, Did you find it and how? Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, again, it was a moment of losing it. We had to keep our sense of humor, and I think that's a good lesson for the world. You have to keep your sense of humor during the during the the darkest days um, because that keeps you moving forward. What happened was at the end of uh, a year for the HBO Comedy Network, we called Comedy Channel, uh, and the end of six months for Ha. The powers that be at our two organizations got together behind everybody else's back um, and decided to merge the channels. And they did that thinking, you know, we can beat ourselves up for the rest of, of our lives, but, you know, only one channel is going to survive. We might as well merge them. And that was a huge disappointment for me. That was a huge disappointment for me because I thought, I thought what we were doing uh, at HBO, the comedy channel, was so interesting, and it really kind of it, it, it became successful in my mind for a couple reasons. One, almost immediately, comedians started hanging around the comedy channel. Remember, they didn't have places to hang around with each other. You know, clubs. You mentioned you know the clubs in New York and in L.A. and sure. everywhere else. Sure, but you know the whole idea that we were throwing an entire channel for comedians was very flattering to them. And they started looking for us. They started wanting to come and hang out at the studio. They came with crazy ideas to pitch us. And we put some really interesting stuff on the air in the early days uh, and beyond. And that was one of my hopes for comedy, that it would be innovative uh, and it would attract um, comedians. Second was, you know, talk about innovative, Mystery Science Theater 3000, where you have a guy and two robots sitting in front of a movie and, you know, uh, just riffing uh, on fun it. of it, yeah. Just riffing on it. You think NBC was going to put that on, or HBO for that matter? I mean, these guys were these guys were making it in a Minneapolis uh, UHF station um, for fun, just because they thought it would be fun. They had been working at the station, um, and when comedy announced, when we announced that we were doing a comedy channel, even before we launched, they sent us a tape. That's how we found it. 
a guy, one of the interns walked in with it. He said, hey, you guys got to see this. It's really cool. And he, Hey, Art, I want to pick it up there in a minute, but I have to take another break. Can you stand by oh, for okay, a couple yeah, of minutes? Yeah. Okay, my guest is Art Bell. We're talking about uh, Comedy Central and, in particular, Mystery Science Theater, uh, which is now called Mystery Science Theater 3000. Um, but uh, we'll talk more about that with Art Bell right after we take this break. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hi, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. If you like talk radio that makes you think without telling you what to think, check out our whole show weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern at TomSumnerProgram.com. Selected segments are also available on this and other radio stations, but you can hear us anytime. Daily editions of the Tom Sumner Program repeat online all day and night on the show's website. Past shows can be found in the website archives. My long-format interviews with New York Times best-selling authors, photographers, and writers from National Geographic, as well as artists, musicians, candidates, and elected officials are made possible by listeners like you. Support the Tom Sumner Program and Civilized Talk Radio. Visit our website at TomSumnerProgram.com and become a member. You can make a one-time gift or become a sustaining patron by taking the link to the Tom Sumner Program Patreon page. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Thank you, and thank you all for tuning in. You know, we know that tough times don't last, but tough people do. We've been through a lot here in Michigan. We've been through crisis before, where the country needed their countrymen and countrywomen to pitch in collectively to get through a crisis and rise to the occasion. Michigan once was the arsenal of democracy to win World War II. We need that same spirit now. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals and first responders to stop the spread and to save lives. But we need your help too. The state has launched a new volunteer website at www.michigan.gov forward slash fight COVID-19 where trained medical professionals can register to serve their fellow Michiganders by assisting hospitals in fighting COVID-19. State residents can also use the site to find out how they can help in their local communities by giving blood or donating resources or needed medical supplies. Whether you're a medical professional looking to volunteer or you're someone who can give blood or donate to your local food bank, everyone can help out. To get through this, we must all do our part. 
stay home, stay safe, and save lives. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place with magical charms, indoors, 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 take it away. Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, we're spending the hour with uh, Art Bell, the uh, author of a new book called Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. Art, welcome back. Thanks. Um, Art, just before the break, we were talking a little bit about uh, about the uh, losing your sense of humor and getting it back, and, and you were talking about mystery science uh, theater and, and how that was a big part of... Uh, or, or at least played a role in, in coming up with content for uh, Comedy Central. But I also want to try to get in before we run out of time. Um, you went on to uh, become president of Court TV. Um, yeah. That seems like a weird jump. <laughs> well, probably no weirder than going from economics to television. Um, I suppose. I, I, you know, it's always good to change uh, channels, uh, or at least that's how I saw my life. You know, let's do something different. Well, I left comedy um, uh, after about seven or eight years of being there, Comedy Central. And by the way, I, I just want to point out that when the channels merged, uh, High and Comedy Channel became... Comedy Central, that was almost as hard as launching the channel to begin with. Because putting together, you know, two completely different cultures um, in, in an effort to scramble to, to keep a comedy network alive was as hard a thing as I've ever had to do. But again, we pulled it off and, uh, and Comedy Central went on to thrive and put on some great programming uh, in, the, in the six or seven years I was there after that. And then, of course, in the last whatever 20 something years um it's really been uh, it's really been quite remarkable but yes i i left comedy they brought in some new management i was head of uh, programming and marketing um but they brought in new management and uh and my boss who was the president was uh fired and then of course the new management uh kind of took uh took the rest of us out so and it was very disappointing to me but you know life goes on so i i i ended up a couple of years later, as president of Court TV, and Court TV was a, a great challenge. It was a great business challenge, a great programming challenge, um, because Court TV was started as an all trials, all the time channel. We talked about how difficult it is to do an all something <laughs> channel, <laughs> right? And this one really didn't work. I mean, prime time repeats of live trial coverage didn't exactly get an audience when they were up against, you know, primetime on the networks and the, and the big cable networks. So um, basically, they were, they were flopping uh, in a big way. And the owners at that time, it was Time Warner and uh, Liberty Media and NBC were the owners, um, decided they'd take one more run at it. The, we, you know, Core TV didn't have a lot of subscribers. They had no money. They had no programming concept. And they hired me, and they hired another guy, and they said, okay, 
figure out if we can save this channel somehow and that's what i did i mean it was uh so was so do we have in. so do we have you to blame for the proliferation of reality television no, actually, you have <laughs> me to thank that there isn't more reality television. I have to say, I, I, left, uh, I left Court TV around, uh, you know, the mid-2000s. And I, I, one of the reasons is we had to do some reality television, so-called reality television, which, of course, wasn't real. Um, it was, uh, you know, it was produced. Um, and we did some of that, and I, I just found it uh, really not a great way to do television. What a lot of a lot of what Court TV did was documentary television. Um, and if you're lumping that in with reality television, please let me make the distinction. Documentaries, documentarians, are people who go out there and tell a story that really happened. Mostly, uh, e e not mostly, but often in retrospect, but sometimes in real time. But it is not. Uh, produced right. in the way you right. know, that uh, the reality television we know it today is produced. And I had, I, I just honestly, I had a very hard time with reality television, and I was, I was glad to uh, not have to do that, <laughs> to tell you the truth. Um, as, as, you know, I, listen, I understand that reality television is fun. It's sometimes fun to watch, but um, it, it, it was not what we were doing uh, or wanted to do a lot of. Well, I... Um I have to say, I was poking around on your website a little bit, Art, and I was, I, I was just ever so slightly disappointed that I couldn't find any, uh, any, any videos of you playing jazz drums. <laughs> Nor were you ever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, as I said, uh, I, one thing I learned at comedy early on when I was at Comedy uh, Channel and Comedy Central was you don't, you don't mess with the professionals. And um, uh, trying to be funny in a meeting with, you know, with Bill Maher or with John Stewart, you, just, you don't want to do that. And similarly, <laughs> I do not want to put myself out there as a professional musician. Um, I am a, an amateur musician who loves it, uh, and I'm not embarrassed to play in front of people, but <laughs> the idea of putting a tape of me playing out there is, is uh, not, not what I want to do. Um, now, this book is, is a memoir. Um, but after writing this book, and and you wrote another book, uh, what was the uh, what was the book? I lost. Uh, oh, that was I years ago at Comedy notes. Channel, yeah, at Comedy Central rather. Yeah. I wrote a book with two other guys called uh, um, Websites We'd Like to See. Right, 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 right. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. And of. it was really a, it was really because uh, the web business was starting up, and we had just I was responsible for putting together the first Comedy Central website. And a couple of friends of mine, including a guy who was a, com a radio comedy guy, uh, put the website together, and we wanted to make it funny. And we just thought the whole web thing was such a riot with all the websites that were showing up. And so we did that book. It was a comedy book. And, well, I, I guess the, the question that I have is, do you have the bug for writing now? What's next for you? Well, yeah, uh, I do have the bug for writing, and that's what I'm doing uh, a, a lot these days. I, I actually didn't start out to write a memoir about Comedy Central. I started out just writing because I loved it. And I took some classes in writing and learned how to become a better writer. And one day I was in a class and I wrote something about that happened at Comedy Central. And everybody looked at me and said, wow, we didn't know you did that. Really? Cool. Why don't you write more about that? So I did. 
I was a little taken aback. I said, like, I'd just written 150,000 words about my childhood, and suddenly the class woke up when I wrote something about Comedy Central. But anyway, I, I, so I did write some more about Comedy Central, and it ended up being this, this memoir, um, which I worked very hard on. But I, you know, I still, I, I've writ, I'm writing fiction now. I'm writing some short stories. I still write memoir. I've gotten some short stories published, I'm proud to say. And, um, and I love writing. I have, you know, changed the channel uh, once again. Well, we, we've got to we've got to end it there. But I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Um, what's your website, Art? That's artbellwriter.com, uh, and that's a good place to find out about me and the book. And I also post some some writing on a regular basis there in my blog. So, uh, which is often funny and sometimes not. So, um, <laughs> such is the and, nature. <laughs> That's right, and uh, and of course you can buy my book on Amazon or at your local uh, independent bookstore or at you know any of the bookstores. They're all carrying it. Well, Art, it's so been a, an honor and a pleasure to get this chance to get to know you a little bit. No, it's been a pleasure being here, Tom. I've really enjoyed our conversation. All right, take care. Good luck with the book. Thank you. Bye bye. That was Art Bell, author of. Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. I remember the night Mom was pounding on her drums. She called me to her side. She said, son, you're growing up. Pretty soon you're going to drive. And Daddy heard the commotion and came, came in tap dancing, playing his sixth string. And they both looked at me and they said, son, before you get behind the wheel of a car, you listen to me. If you're texting while you steer, don't drive. If you've been drinking beer, don't drive. If you're talking on the phone, don't drive. If your tires are bald and it's starting to snow, don't drive. If your foot can't reach the pedal, don't drive. If you're wearing no apparel, don't drive. If you took an illegal prescription, don't drive. If no one understands your diction, don't drive. Don't speed, don't don't shave, don't rave, don't wave, don't eat And don't put no makeup on or shave You know you're not supposed to do that <laughs> If you gotta do something you're not supposed to do You can go ahead and step on my blue suede shoes Ah, uh, go ahead and scuff them up <laughs> If you're driving with your knees Don't drive While you roll you eat if you don't know how to drive, don't drive. If you've been psychedelicized, don't drive. If you're kissing on your boo, don't drive. If your boo's kissing on you, don't drive. If you've been drinking at a bar, don't drive. If there's guns in the car, don't drive. Don't groom, don't shave, don't tweeze, don't nurse, don't voice these things in your ears or rummage through your purse. Something you're not supposed to do You can go ahead and talk on my Fu Manchu Go ahead, I don't care Watch me tear If you feel like a nap Don't try If there's a pooch on your lap Oh, it's dangerous and creepy If you're feeling really wired If your license is expired Don't you drive around the town
something you're not supposed to do You can go ahead and step on my bluesway shoes Scuff them up Then go ahead and pull on my Fu Manchu Yeah If you wanna do something You wanna do something that's good If you're feeling like any of that stuff Don't drive Make sure you got a clear head Ow You pilots get off my lawn We're trying to do a radio show down here it's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here. It's time.